Welcome to Budget Watchdog, All Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. Cut through the partisan rhetoric and talking points for the facts about what's being talked about, bandied about, and pushed in Washington. Brought to you by Taxpayers for Common Sense. And now, the host of Budget Watchdog AF, TCS President Steve Ellis. Welcome to all American taxpayers seeking common sense. You've made it to the right place. For over 25 years, TCS, that's Taxpayers for Common Sense, has served as an independent, nonpartisan budget watchdog group based in Washington, D.C. We believe in fiscal policy for America that is based on facts. We believe in transparency and accountability because no matter where you are on the political spectrum, no one wants to see their tax dollars wasted. Welcome to September, everyone. I wish we had better watchdog news from our perch here on Capitol Hill, but we don't. The September 30 deadline to fund the federal government for fiscal year 2024 or to pass a continuing resolution for stopgap funding until negotiators can agree on appropriations, looms larger by the minute. Lawmakers are coming back, and this is when it gets real fast. Real fast. With regular order out the window, again, will there be a government shutdown? How much money will that cost taxpayers? TCS Senior Policy Analyst Josh Sewell joins me now with all the answers. Hi, Josh. Hi, Steve. It's good to be back. So, Josh... Right before he went home for summer recess, Representative Bob Good of Virginia, a member of the Freedom Caucus, told the press, quote, we should not fear a government shutdown. Most of what we do up here is bad anyway. Most of what we do here hurts the American people. So besides the fact that he doesn't seem too happy with his job, let's talk a little bit more about some of the, the factors at play. Um, Josh, is, is House Majority Leader Hakeem Jeffries right when he says the appropriations process has been hijacked by the most extreme wing of the Republican Party? Uh, I think he's partially correct. Why the qualifier? So mainly because the spending bills, like almost anything happening in Washington, is occurring in a very partisan environment. And frankly, I think more importantly, in a divided government. And divided government is not conducive to smooth legislative sailing. So by divided government, you're talking about how you've got a House Republican majority, a Senate Democratic majority, and a Democrat in the White House, right? Exactly. So partisanship does seem high right now. Um, and people point to divided government leading to an increase of rancor and inability to pass legislation. Yes. I mean, just think of the first debt limit crisis in 2011 after Republicans took the House in 2010 with the help of those Tea Party Republicans and their focus on cutting spending. Then you had government shutdown, don't forget, in 1995, uh, which happened after a wave election for the GOP with Democrat Bill Clinton as president. And hey, the last time we had a, well, not the last time, but we, the, last time, the first time we had a shutdown in a long time uh, back in 2013. Same kind of dynamics. Yeah, but partisanship is always part of this process, and um, divided government seems to be more the rule than the exception. There hasn't been that many uh, years of unified government control by one party. Yeah, yeah. well, now Speaker McCarthy has a math problem. So as a reminder, the majority is 222 to 212, and there's one vacancy in a Democratic seat. Right, and then, and that's because, you know, Normally, you'd have these wave elections, you know, that that kind of create this sort of partisanship and rancor. And clearly, 
this isn't a wave election or wasn't a wave election for the for the Republicans in the House. But on a strictly party line vote, the majority could only afford to lose four votes of their conference, right? Yeah. And that is the tightest House margin of my career. And it leads to potentially a lot of power vested in a small number of people if the underlying bill or issue does not attract that broad bipartisan support. But let's um, go back to Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. Um, is he is he right about the, the appropriations has been hijacked? So maybe this is semantics, but I, I take exception with the term hijacked. I mean, using the tools that you have to gain leverage and achieve the outcomes you want, that's politics. I, it's not nice. It doesn't feel good sometimes, but that's politics. And it's true that Freedom Caucus members have been some of the most active in using that leverage. But you can just look, I mean, as a case in point, just look at the uh, multiple rounds of voting it took for Representative McCarthy to become Speaker McCarthy. Well, isn't that part of the the, the issue here? I mean, that um, he's concerned about his job because clearly they, they already struck a deal back in the in the earlier in the summer on the debt ceiling um, and agreed to spending levels. And so um, couldn't, you know, Speaker McCarthy gather some support from the Democrats to pass those appropriations bills. But then I guess he's worried that the, the all of a sudden they'll make a motion to vacate the chair and out he'll go as a, a very short live speaker. No, that and that is. And so this really comes down to politics and uh, self-preservation in some respects. Uh, to be fair, I think folks who are asking for spending levels below what was in the budget deal um, have moved the goalposts. Um, but I mean, it's their right, it's their prerogative. And so I think in the end, it, their demand is just not politically plausible. And so- And that gets, so you, you mentioned an important point there um, that we hadn't discussed yet. Um, podcast listeners, you know, there was um, spending caps agreed to for two years in that debt ceiling deal. Um, so it wasn't just that they were- pushing off the debt ceiling until 2025. They also agreed for um, enforceable caps for the next two fiscal years. And um, basically, the uh, the members of the Freedom Caucus that we're discussing took that cap as a, as a literal term and are trying to go below that, rather not treating it as a floor, but treating it as a ceiling and trying to cut even beyond. Um, and so, you know, is it plausible? I mean, what what is the... the how does this game out for the Freedom Caucus? Yeah, and this is where it's not plausible. I mean, the Senate won't do it. I mean, the Senate is not, the Senate, how uh, both Republicans and Democrats have said, we we went through the hard process of getting a deal. We're going to stick to the de- that deal. And they, the Senate has been working on their bills in, in the Appropriations Committee at the levels in the budget deal. And so for the House to come back and say, well, actually, we're going to go back to 2022 levels, uh, or, or and some of you want to go farther back than that. It's just, it's not going to happen. And so, again, I don't blame Freedom Caucus folks or others for using the tools that they have and advocating for what they want. But there's a point where it's it's not going to happen. But I also want to point out that you know, we're talking about appropriations and the Freedom Caucus, but they aren't the only people in Congress who are using leverage. Right. That The House bill um, that was to use to lift the debt ceiling um, at the last minute... Um, members of the uh, Corn Caucus withheld their support until uh, sections repealing a bunch of biofuels and ethanol tax credits uh, were removed, right? Right. And those were biofuels tax credits that were a part of the IRA that none of them voted for, but none of those Republicans voted for. 
And But are those members being branded the ethanol extremists or biofuels bandits? No, maybe they should be, but they aren't. And neither are the groups of Republicans, who are mainly from blue states, who are threatening to tank extensions of expiring tax cuts unless they get their repeal of the $10,000 limit on deducting state and local taxes. So, I mean, defense hawks aren't threatening. There are defense hawks out there threatening to be obstacles unless more money is spent on the Pentagon. So, I mean, the Freedom Caucus folks, they're just the most active and obvious and in some ways the biggest thorn in the side of the speaker. But yet um, with the new fiscal year looming, um, their obstinance could be costly. Um, I mean, there's been some calculations on how much previous shutdowns have actually uh, cost taxpayers. Yeah, there have been. And so I think it was the, the, the last shutdown that we had, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, actually ran the numbers and it decreased GDP in the, in the period while it was there between 0.3 and 0.6%. Uh, and, that, and then you come into the actual federal spending, it actually ended up uh, causing $11 billion in less spending. Um, some of that was delayed, but ultimately you had $3 billion that never went out the door um, that didn't, it's, you lost that economic activity. And so there's an actual real number to some of these things that you can see. And there's also a lot of inconveniences that aren't calculable for, uh, as a federal cost or savings to individuals uh, and businesses that rely on the various federal programs or are just at least affected by that downstream spending. Right. And, you know, less economic activity also means less tax revenue for Uncle Sam as well. You're listening to Budget Watchdog All Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. I'm your host, TCS President Steve Ellis, and we continue now with Mr. Agriculture, Josh Sewell. So, Josh, we're at the point where the end of the fiscal year is less than a month away. Is a government shutdown inevitable? So two weeks ago, I would have said yes, um, maybe even two days ago. Um, I couldn't see a path for folks to really move in their positions. There's a lot of folks who've dug in their heels and, you know, less than a month and which could be just a handful of legislative days. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I was uh, asked before um, what I thought was the likelihood of a shutdown. And just a week ago, I said 85 percent. And I'm kind of stepping back from that. Um so what what happened in the last couple of weeks that uh, changed your mind? Well, I mean, stuff got real. I mean, the speaker himself publicly floated the need for a short-term continuing resolution, which would keep uh, the government running at basically existing levels, um, possibly through December. Then you had the wildfires devastating Hawaii. Hurricane Hillary led to massive flooding, especially in California. And then, you know, just we're still in the throes of a hurricane going through Florida and Georgia. So it it seems that there is real momentum building for some sort of emergency spending to take care of some of those needs. Yeah, and, and podcast listeners uh, can remember that we discussed that you know that earlier this summer, or just earlier in August, um, that the uh, administration sent a forty billion dollar request um, that was for some money for Ukraine, some border related funds, twelve billion dollars to resupply uh, the disaster relief fund, which is obviously being tapped even more um, than it was uh, when they made that request. And, um, you know, the, the balance at the end of August was down to $3.4 billion, which is far short of what what uh, will be needed uh, as we go through more of the, the kind of the, the, the heart of hurricane season. Yeah, exactly. And, and I guess maybe it's an understatement to, saying, to say that 
there'd be some mixed signals to adopt an emergency supplemental, then turn around and shut down the government days later. I it it's just weird. Yeah, and and you know, is also is it's kind of hard to see that um, you know, part of the issue is is getting a vehicle and clearly disasters have been a vehicle for CRs in the past. Um and that there's a clear need for the spending and so it has um it doesn't have to stick out by itself. Um and it 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 catches a ride. So let's get into the mechanics of of um if there is a shutdown. I mean, because I guess the thing is is that even if there's a CR if it's a short-term CR, and I mean really short-term, like a week or two weeks, not into December, I still think a, a, a shutdown is really uh, plausible and possible. And certainly there are people who are cheerleading for it, just like we, we discussed earlier with uh, Representative Good. Um, so what's the mechanics? Ha- what happens when the government, quote-unquote, shuts down? So it's, I mean, for a shutdown, it's actually a very busy and complicated process. And so ultimately, it has a lot of costs with little to no benefits in, I think, for most people's calculations. So just some of the mechanics is actually happening right now. Every agency has to spend the time and money developing a shutdown plan. They actually go through the bureaucratic process of writing out a plan of what they're going to do. And uh, they basically identify who's essential, who's non-essential. They also have to identify where their funding comes from. So you have such a massive federal budget and a lot of different um, actual spending lines. And so is the funding coming from the annual appropriations or is it coming from some other sort of fund, say uh, fees that people pay or other sort of uh, non-taxing fees? So basically when a lapse in funding does occur, if there is a shutdown, those essential workers that the agencies have identified, they have to stay on the job. And the non-essentials, they're locked out of the buildings uh, and they're locked out of their uh, computers if they're not in the buildings. <laughs> and those who have secured funding from some other source, oftentimes, including those past appropriations, can keep working. But it's not cut and dry. It's not very obvious from the outset. And it takes a lot of time and effort, frankly, to to figure it out, to even plan for a shutdown. Yeah. And, and you know, we have saw in the last shutdown um, that that was under the Trump administration um, because he had seemed to be cheerleading for it. They were actually trying to make it have a less impact on uh, on the public, to make it less painful. Um, and so you had cases of where the uh, Park Service was using um, entrance fees for other uh, uses that were deemed um, not appropriate. And you also had a big change where there was a lot of people talking about, and obviously this is close to my heart, about the Coast Guard and how because of DHS being shut down that Whereas other military services were actually um, deemed essential that the Coast Guard was having to do some of their work, but then um, wasn't getting paid um, as essential workers, you know, and then certainly the Coast Guard is heavily involved in disasters and, and, and in you know, search and rescue and things along those lines or FEMA for that, for instance, as well. So, you know, when you think about it, essential workers tend to be, you know, military, law enforcement, air traffic controllers, USDA, meat inspectors. Yeah. And honestly, whether or not you can pay the military, I mean, we have a large military with a lot of members, um, even if they're essential, they're not going to get paid unless you have that exception. And so, I mean, it's just a very complicated issue. And, you know, you mentioned meat inspectors and yeah, USDA meat inspectors are essential, but in the last shutdown, not all FDA inspectors were. So the Food and Drug Administration, 
and because you have this bifurcation between certain foods are FDA and certain foods are USDA. And so meat and eggs, yeah, they got inspected, but some of those foods in like manufacturing facilities for, for other things, they weren't inspected. It's just, it's ridiculous, um, frankly. And also thank God that catfish is USDA inspected. So we know we're getting quality catfish. Yeah, exactly. We know we're, we're getting that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but so also it's, it's one of these issues where federal programs that are implemented by states, which a lot of them are, um, such as nutrition assistance, the SNAP program, uh, those often continue because the money is already obligated and the state is the one doing it. But you think about the timing of a shutdown, if it goes beyond a month or if it crosses that, that first of the month threshold, it, you start to lose that money. And so then you're going to see potentially folks losing their ability to get that assistance because the feds can't actually process the paperwork to get the next tranche of funding to the states. So either the states have to cut people off of some of these welfare programs um, that many of them are, you know, affecting people who are rather destitute or the states can continue, but then it's, the risk is on them. They have to come back uh, and seek reimbursement from using their own cash. And we know many states are either cash strapped or just um, certainly don't have a, they either can't run deficits or they have a hard time uh, with a lot of flexibility in the rainy day funds. And so it just causes a lot of, it, it's not just ha- causing heartburn, it causes harm to folks um, and it's in- inefficient. It's inefficient and ultimately, um, I'm not sure what we get out of it. Right, because in the end, no money is saved, right? You know, I mean, even if, if uh, you know, going back to uh, Congressman Good, um, his comments is that um, even if even if you agree that that all they do is harm people or whatever, eventually government is going to get funded, and so and not only that, for those workers that um, were deemed non-essential and didn't go to work, um, they still get paid. So I mean, we're basically paying them. Um, because it's no harm, no fault of their own that they are not going into work. They're legally not allowed to enter the building. They will be turned away. Um, they get all that back pay. Um, and so we end up actually spending more money because we're not getting whatever jobs or whatever things they actually do. I mean, it's stupid. No, it is. And, and I don't have any problems with having the debate about whether or not we should be doing X program or whether or not our government is too big doing too much. But these shutdowns haven't forced that debate. Not really. They have not led to cutting of agencies. They have not led to permanent savings or even temporary savings. You know, we've seen the numbers just aren't there. And so one thing that they have led to, which you mentioned the park service, you know, the Trump administration keeping the, the, the parks open. I mean, this is something I do remember from the 94, 95 shutdown um, when I was very young. Um is the pictures of, is the first time you'd seen the, the National Mall closed. You'd saw the, the locking the gate of Yellowstone so no one can come in. Um, well, they didn't do that in the last shutdown because, because the Trump administration tapped this fund that was created years ago. When you pay to go to a national park, part of your fee goes into a pot of fund to tackle a multi-billion dollar backlog for major maintenance. So think of things like repaving the going to the Sun Road and Glacier or fixing crumbling visitor centers, building new bathrooms in places where they don't exist. Well, the Trump administration redefined trash collection and restroom cleaning as major maintenance and used that fund, which is designed for paving roads and building buildings to clean bathrooms 
so they could stay sanitary and keep the parks open because they didn't want to shut down a bunch of parks and hunting areas, places where people fish and recreate and had that political blowback on them. I, technically, that was a violation of the Anti-Deficiency Act and in let us have a moment of silence for Wendy Jordan and her love of the Anti-Deficiency Act. But we've done a lot of work on that too. But in the end, is it's just, frankly, asinine. Like these things cost money. Shutdowns don't achieve much. They don't do it, lead to enduring spending cuts. I don't know what we get out of it. And they're not even politically advantageous. They're just dysfunction. Yeah, certainly history's kind of shown that whoever gets blamed for the shutdown, and certainly there are some cheerleaders for the shutdown in the um, in the House Freedom Caucus, um, that it, it it hurts their party politically, you know, and and so it's kind of an interesting game that you know Speaker McCarthy is kind of gambling here, even though he's called for a continuing resolution. If he caters to um, the Freedom Caucus and and it leads to a shutdown, um, you know that's going to hurt his speakership and maybe he'll be a one-term speaker. Um, but he's kind of gambling on that. At least it appears right now. It does. And I think this is a time where, you know, we, we call for this a lot, but leadership doesn't come from the back. You lead, you lead from the front. And I think to be the speaker, to be anyone in Washington, you need to make the tough decisions. And there's a time where you can choose the interest of your constituents and the country over your own political future. And what you think is frankly, I mean, yeah, maybe he's damned if he does, he damned if he don't. So let's not cost us a bunch of money, dysfunction, and lead to more problems. Let's just move forward, give yourself a couple months, and then have these debates. Again, we're going to fight about these spending levels for the foreseeable future. We don't need to shut down the government uh, and then still not actually make any progress. I mean, certainly there are people who, you know, you could argue were very aggressive about cutting government and, and you know, and cutting spending that are now pushing, you know, for uh, a continuing resolution. And Senator Scott from Florida, um, obviously just hit by a hurricane that the, he wants to get a continuing resolution through and he wants to get the funding, you know, for the supplemental. And so that's certainly going to be a big uh, debate in the, the ending days, I should say, of this fiscal year. And let's be clear, you know, I mean, a continuing resolution is like the least bad option, you know, I mean, in that... Um, it's still, there's a cost of continuing resolutions. It stalls government. It doesn't uh, allow agencies to plan for the future. And so it's not like that's a, a, that's a good thing, but it's a better thing than having a shutdown. And, you know, as you pointed out earlier, Josh, I mean, the house has passed one, one appropriation bill, one out of the dozen, but the committee has passed all the 11 others. The Senate committees have passed all 12 of theirs. So the bills are written. And now it's a question of just hashing all of that out and 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 getting to over over the goal line. And um, you know, it's funny we talk about regular order, but really, irregular order is what is is the rule, uh, uh, not the exception. You know, they've only passed since they created the budget process in 1974. The federal government has only had all the spending bills done four times, nearly 50 years. Four times. The last time was for fiscal year 1997. The last time they were done individually and on time, regular order, was in 1994 for fiscal year 1995. And so, you know, something needs to to give and there needs to be some pressure to, to actually get Congress to do their jobs, leaving aside the whole shutdown shenanigans that are going on. The history of appropriations shows that a continued resolution isn't the end of the world. I mean- 
we don't have to rush to get things done. You don't have to bend to um, a small minority of folks who who want to change the rules of the game that we all have just agreed to. Um, it's better to just extend it a little bit and get it a, get a little bit better bills a little bit later. And there's always room for doing some anomalies. CRs are not very good, but you can make some adjustments, immediate adjustments uh, for some of the critical programs that need to respond right now. And since I earlier called you Mr. Agriculture, doesn't the farm bill uh, expire at the end of this fiscal year? Yeah, but who cares? Yeah, it, technically the farm bill does expire at the end of September. And so dogs and cats would start sleeping together and the world would fall apart, except it won't. And so uh, it's one of those things where real world ramifications of an expiring farm bill don't really happen until months later when they do. The government would have to start reviving some ancient programs from the dead. Um, and so you, you know, maybe you'll throw in a farm bill extension along with the CR and some other things. That's That would be fine with me. It would give us another year to really educate members of Congress of some reform opportunities. Um, but I mean, it shows there are a lot of other things that Congress needs to work on. So, you know, let's get some of this stuff done. Josh Sewell, thanks for helping all of us look around the congressional corner. It's coming up fast. Yeah, thanks, Steve. It's always fun. Well, there you have it, podcast listeners. Fear the shutdown. Don't fear the shutdown. Either way, it's your money and you deserve better. This is The Frequency. Mark it on your dial. Subscribe and share. And know this, Taxpayers for Common Sense has your back, America. We read the bills, monitor the earmarks, and highlight those wasteful programs that poorly spend our money and shift long-term risk to taxpayers. We'll be back with a new episode soon. I hope you'll meet us right here to learn more.